isn't it fun not to take ourselves too seriously? That's, that's important. That's good. Well, I appreciate it. Again, uh, last night we had a wedding here. Like 14 hours ago, this looked really different. A whole bunch of tables and a buffet over there. And I was trying to petition, hey, leave the buffet and we'll bring egg casseroles. But no one listened to me. Actually, there was no petition, but there was a wedding. Jim and Janet got married last night. It was a great wedding and a good reception, so that was a lot of fun. Anyway, we are here to continue with Advent and joy and looking at the birth of Jesus. And seriously, unexpected government mandates shows up in the text today. It's kind of crazy, right? So who would have thought like five or ten years ago that that would be like a very relevant theme? Anyway, we'll get to that in due time. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 2. We're going to be taking a look at Luke 2 and um, looking at Jesus comes through the least of these for the least of these. He comes through the least of these, Joseph and Mary. He appears to the least of these, the shepherds. In the least of these, little town of Bethlehem, no name Bethlehem, for the least of the people, the outcast and the forgotten. But seriously, in Luke 2, we're going to be looking at chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We see an unexpected government mandate, the census, leads to an unexpected timing of birth in an unexpected and unknown town of Bethlehem. So a lot of things are going on here, but the sovereignty of God and his, his plan for salvation is just on every situation here, and that's not surprising. So we see that um, the story of Jesus and really his life experience in the Gospels, it's all about obscurity, poverty, and rejection. I mean, Jesus is not somebody that was championing, you know, I'm a hero and I want to be known. His brother said that in um, somewhere in John. It says, well, if you want to be known, well, then you need to go over here. If you want to be a big deal. So his own family kind of thought he was trying to be a big deal, and that's not his, that was not his, um, his deal. Anyway, um, we're in Luke 2, and we're not going to go through the whole Gospel of Luke, but so we're just kind of parachuting in. But I want to let you know that um, there in chapter 1, there's a situation that happened that we need to know about because it makes chapter 2 interesting, and that's John's birth. Um, John's birth, Zechariah and Elizabeth, an angel appeared to them. You're going to have a baby in your old age, and he responds with unbelief. And uh, last week, we contrasted that with Mary, who is not a a religious professional. And as you're reading the story, you get to the angel telling her, you're going to have a baby. And we're wondering, will the little teenage girl have more faith than the professional religious person? And the answer is, yeah, which is encouraging for us. You don't have to be a professional religious person to have faith, right? So that that was good news. But anyway, John's birth was announced in Jerusalem, the capital, in the temple. He's a professional priest. And here in chapter 2, Jesus' birth is announced in rural anonymity, just, just on the outcast, to shepherds, to, to, to the forgotten, the outcast, right? A, a, a town that we'll see here in, um, in Micah that's called too little to be important, all right? So um, let's go to verse 1. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out, from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So these census 
Um, registrations were important for taxable purposes. Rome needs to know how much money could we get, how many people we got, crunch the numbers. It took, uh, they happen about every 14 year cycles, and it took literally years for that to be completed. So it's, it's a big deal. And um, in verse 3, it goes on, every, it all went to be registered, each to his own town. So you had to go back to the town of your, your family fathers, your ancestry, and um, there is evidence in the historical records that probably there was um, not only if you're from Bethlehem, you're born there, but if you owned any land or taxable property, you had to go back there to register, you know, hey, I have half an acre here, how much for that? And so it's possible, I mean, the text doesn't say this, but it's possible that Joseph might have owned some land somewhere around Bethlehem, but even if he doesn't, he still needs to go back. Just one of those things that's, that's curious and interesting. Anyway, uh, Jews were exempt from military service, but they were not exempt from the government of Rome's mandates. Just let that sink in. It's a government mandate. They still had to go to Bethlehem, okay? Um, and so you go to Bethlehem because the, the streets, it's a tiny town, and, and the streets are packed with cousins and aunts and uncles, all these people going back to for the census, right? And, and it's such a small town that really you're not going to find, like, a Motel 6 because there's not enough people. So there's not, I'll get to the, the definition of inn. It's not an inn, but anyway, um, it, it's overcrowded, and they show up, and um, we'll get to that eventually. But, but the, it's basically, um, just imagine a cross between a great family reunion and like a business convention, all, all converging on this tiny little town around Bethlehem. And so anyway, they go here, verse 4. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So we have a whole bunch of stuff here. Um, first off, that's about a 75-mile trip, and uh, a little longer if you choose to go around Samaria, but um, that's another story. They went through so three days, probably longer than three days if, you're, if she's pregnant, that you're not going to be going fast. And um, when we used to go backpacking, you know, eight... 10 miles a day, one trip, we went 13, and it was a bad deal. But anyway, so here, 75 miles, uh, of course, they have a donkey. So you're not just walking, you're not running. Um, but they go to the city of Bethlehem with Mary. I, I brought this up last week. Why? She doesn't have to go. He has to go. Well, remember, she's with child, and she's just betrothed or engaged, and so there's a lot of social shame and awkwardness, and if he leaves her back in Nazareth when he goes to Bethlehem, one, she's probably going to have the baby when he's not around. They don't want that. They want to be together. Two, social shame. He's like, honey, don't stay in Nazareth. You know, they don't understand, and, and she'll have all this uh, social ridicule on her, and so come with me. Let's get out of that, and then also this, this will blow your mind. By this point, they know their baby is the Messiah. I mean, how do you, right? And, um, and so as soon as the angel, you know, the angel appears in Matthew, we, we understand the angel appears to Mary and then to Joseph, and he's like, wow. So they understand that their baby is the Messiah. How much you want to bet, as soon as they, they meet, you know, they're texting, did you know our baby, you know? And, and then they're going to go to the Old Testament scrolls, crack those Old Testament scrolls open, and go, what does the Old Testament say about the Messiah? And wow, guess what they find? The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, right? Micah, 
But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now, Ephrathah is just a way to say it's, it's, it's the um, Bethlehem of Judea in the south. There's another Bethlehem way up in Zebulun, but this is Bethlehem of Judea. You who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. For from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So they're, they're hearing, you know, they understand their baby is the Messiah. They understand they have to go to Bethlehem. And they're like, this is why we are going to Bethlehem. Because not only just to fulfill a 700-year-old prophecy, but this is where the Messiah has to be born. Now, this is fascinating, right? Because while others would be complaining about, stupid Rome, got to go to Bethlehem. It's a long walk. Joseph and Mary are like, this is why. So Joseph is saying, God is even in control of government mandates. Yeah, it's true. Anyway, so seriously, they would be thrilled that they're going to Bethlehem because they see a big overarching plan of God in the works. Other people that don't see that are just complaining and um, anyway. So they go on here and um, here verse 6. So, okay, look at this. This is Micah 5, but Matthew, now when Matthew quotes this verse, he changes it. He just changes it, right? And it's one uh, little bunny trail here. One fun study about Scripture is how New Testament writers quote Old Testament writers. Now, you and I are downstream from the scientific revolution where everything needs to be precise and exact, right, and measured and charted. And sometimes they take great liberty, and we're like, no, you can't do that. It's like, well, they did. So uh, it's our issue. It's not their issue. Anyway, here's Matthew. Matthew says, oh, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, you know, it, it's basically, he's saying, a little, not really a contradiction, but he's saying, apart from the birthplace of the Messiah, Bethlehem, you got nothing. You're, you're comparatively insignificant. Apart from the birth of the ruler, Bethlehem, you are insignificant. So, um, they go there, and um, he's born in Bethlehem. Now, if you told people, and you know, other people might read Micah and go, okay, the Messiah, when he comes, uh, you know, remember another little bunny trail. Remember their cultural expectation of the Messiah was, you know, a, a powerful figure, right, who's going to conquer Rome and set them politically free and didn't quite get the whole uh, reason Jesus was really coming. But anyway, so they, if you told somebody, well, yeah, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Why would you not think, well, then that must mean he lives in Bethlehem, right? That makes sense. And so his parents are in Bethlehem. And if he's going to be this powerful figure, his parents are probably big deals. They have, they have political and, and wealth connections, military connections. And so it just, it just frames the whole wrong picture that we see in Scripture. That's so interesting to me that, um, of course, we, we never have assumptions that, that are out of line, I mean, it's just, it's just their, it's their issue. I was, I was hitchhiking once, and uh, a long story, but talk about assumptions. I, I was going to, I think it was Tennessee, for a uh, conference, and I just kind of needed some adventure in life. I'm just, everything was just a little too routine. So I, I, I take my mountain bike, I pack it in a box, I UPS it down there. I'm like, I'm not going to rent a car. I'm just going to ride my bike around Nashville to my conference, and that's great. So I get down there. First off, I fly on a Saturday. I'll never forget this. It was December 12th. It was the Big Ten Championship game, and I had a layover in St. Louis where the game was. And I remember, oh, that could have been fun, but I didn't think of that. So I'm at the St. Louis airport 
waiting for my connecting flight, and I was in the middle of my PhD studies, and I'm, I'm working on some final project. I'm sitting at the gate, right? Well, all the, the people, the gate. I'm so engrossed in my reading that after a while I look up, everybody's gone. Every person is, the plane's gone. There's not even the lady behind the desk, and I'm right there. I, somehow I miss all the first boarding, second boarding, old people, military, ladies with babies. I miss all of it, and I look up, they're all gone. So I have to spend the night in St. Louis, and I could have gone to the football game. Anyway, so I get down then to, to uh, Tennessee on a Sunday. I get my bike, and um, my tires are flat. I, I don't know why I deflated them, and so I had no pump. It's a Sunday, and I'm like, so I, I'm, of course I'm staying in some super cheap motel to save money, and the guy, seriously, big white beard overalls, I'm like, are you Santa Claus? Anyway, I tell him, I have to get a pump for my bike. Where? He's like, well, there's a Walmart three miles down here. I'm like, okay, I'll just walk. He's like, are you crazy? Anyway, so I start walking to Walmart, and um, this is, now I'm out in the country, and it's just a blacktop road, no shoulder, sharp ditch, berms and trees, and I'm walking along this road. Here's the assumption part, okay? I'm getting to a point. I haven't forgotten. I'm walking on this paved road. Cars are flying by me fast, and it occurs to me. It occurs to me that nobody is assuming, oh, look, there's a young Christian professor from a college. <laughs> Must be a nice guy. <laughs> nobody would assume that. So finally, I, I make it all the way to Walmart, and then I hitchhike home, and some dude picks me up. He's, he's got a little car, and his wife is in the back seat pregnant, and I'm like, you really shouldn't be picking me up, but thank you anyway. So but the, the, long, the, the short story of that is that, that really changed my perspective of any hitchhiker I see. It makes me question my assumptions. And I'm just, I'm bringing that down here because as, as other people would see Joseph and Mary walking to Bethlehem, nobody would think, oh, look. There goes the parents of the Savior of the world. You just, it's just not on the agenda, they, right? And so sometimes God is up to things that just confound our normal vision. We just don't understand it. And, and, and the birth of Jesus is one of those examples that we need to crack that open and allow him to work in the midst of circumstances and situations that, that our assumptions usually lock all up, right? And so that's, um, that's encouraging. Anyway. Moving on here, it's called the city of David, which is Bethlehem. Now, this is fun. Bet is Hebrew for house, and Lahem is bread. It's the house of bread. How fitting that the one who would say, I am the bread of life, is born in the house of bread, right? And so they're, they're, that's not going to be lost on them. But Bethlehem, as Joseph and Mary, they understand their baby is the Messiah. They're moving or they're going to Bethlehem, walking, riding the donkey, and um, Bethlehem has a rich history of messianic connections. First, Rachel died there giving birth to Bethlehem, to um, Benjamin. So childbirth doesn't always go well. Everybody knows that story in their culture. And so um, they're probably a little nervous about that. But this is the home of Boaz and, and Ruth. Now remember, Ruth in Matthew 1 shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. we got Tamar, Ruth, and Rahab, sketchy women who are, who are not of the line of Israel, but they show up in the line of Jesus. And so you've got Boaz, the noble, honorable guy. He's there. Of course, you have Jesse, David's father, and, and all of David's big, strong, handsome, capable people that maybe should be chosen to be king. But no, none of them were chosen to be king. Well, where's Dave? Where's, where's little David? Well, that little guy, where is he? He's out with the sheep. I'll go get him. So David is a shepherd in Bethlehem, just like the good shepherd came from Bethlehem. So a whole bunch of stuff going on here. He, uh, David is the least of his brothers. He's overlooked. Um, 
and Jesus was overlooked as well. So uh, the Luke describes Bethlehem in, and he includes this here for a couple reasons. It's pretty important. But one, the political situation of his culture. Yeah, Caesar Augustus said you have to go to Bethlehem. So it's important. To, this, is, this story is set in historical reality. And government mandates don't thwart the plan of God. They, 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 he rolls right with it and through it. And we've seen this all over the Old Testament. Remember Assyria. I think this is last week, but Assyria, God says, Assyria is my stick. It's my rod. I'm going to do what I want with Assyria. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he's my servant. I'm going to have him do this and this. Cyrus, king of Persia, he is my shepherd. I'm going to do this with him. So God is totally in control of all these political things. Sometimes these political things that you and I actually justifiably get very nervous about because we care. We care about justice. We care about righteousness. And sometimes we see things going sideways and we should be concerned about that. And we have tools of civic engagement to, to interact with that. But it should never get to the point where we lose hope of God's ability to accomplish his, his mission. So that's what I'm seeing here in the text. And so um, right here we have the Roman census. So whether it's Assyria, Babylon, Persia, here it's Rome in the census, no problem. God is able to use this for his plan. And so Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord's anointed. And he says, he sits in the heavens and laughs. God is never stumped by government mandates. He's never thwarted, confused. There's no panic meeting with the angels in the conference room. What are we going to do? Doesn't happen, all right? So that's one reason why the political situation is it's set in historical reality. The other reason Bethlehem is included here and very important is because he has to be qualified as the Messiah. Bethlehem, that, that we need to know. Yeah, Joseph and Mary are going to go to Bethlehem because of that 700-year prophecy and others. He is qualified to be the Messiah. And finally, this is where the, the rest of my talk today is going to come out. It's, it's a humble beginning, super humble beginning, which really is couched in obscurity, poverty, rejection, and that defines his ministry. And it's curious to me that it doesn't seem to define the ministry of many people in our culture, myself included. I, I'm not one to quickly run towards obscurity, poverty, and rejection. Woohoo! I mean, nobody, right? And, and there's no glory in running off and destroying your life and thinking that's great. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's just in our culture of, of abundance and um, opulence and use those things, leverage those things. They're great tools. They're horrible masters. It's difficult, but we can do that well. Um, anyway, it's interesting that Jesus starts off with humble beginnings. And um, so, again, I'll say this again. David was the least of the brothers. Jesus was from the uh, Bethlehem was the least of Judah. David was from the most insignificant place. From Bethlehem comes the most significant person. David is the overlooked shepherd, and Jesus is the good shepherd who never overlooks the lost sheep. He always seeks them out. So, um, the town of Bethlehem is obscure. Jesus comes through the least of these, Joseph and Mary, in the least of these, Bethlehem, for the least of these, the outcasts of the world. All right? He's the good shepherd. And John 10 talks about the good shepherd and you know, characteristics of the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. The sheep know his voice. He lays his down life for the sheep. Um, the sheep have life and have it abundantly. Characteristics of the bad shepherds. I'm going to get into the, the, in that culture when Jesus was talking about bad shepherds. Oh, he was poking the bear, right? 
The bad shepherds, he says, it's, they're a thief. They come only to steal, kill, and destroy. They don't own the sheep, so when trouble comes, they just leave. They run away. They don't care for the sheep. So this whole sheep-shepherd analogy from Bethlehem, David, and all this, it's, it's pretty, pretty thick in their culture. Matthew 9, a little story here. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing, like a shepherd who healing their diseases and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So, interesting question. Who in their culture was supposed to be taking care of the people? Spiritual care. It would be the religious leaders, the religious professional people. And he looks at the people under their charge and says, this is so sad. You're being harassed. Not just ignored, but harassed. Or as they say today, harassed, right? Anyway, um, and, and so this is an indictment against the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They are not shepherding the sheep. And then, and then of course, in their culture, they, they know the Old Testament better than we ever will. And so they're immediately going to Ezekiel 34. Uh, you know, they're like, ah, shepherds, bad shepherds. I know what you're thinking. So here's, I'm just going to scan through Ezekiel 34. The Lord said to Ezekiel, son of man, prophesy against the shepherd of Israel. For they have been feeding themselves. They have not been feeding the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. With force and harshness you have ruled over them. They were scattered because there was no shepherd. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountain. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth. So when Jesus is talking about the people looking like a sheep without a shepherd and spread and scattered, he's basically saying, Pharisees, Ezekiel 34, that's you. And they would get that. They would understand that, right? So um, the bad shepherd, you know, the Pharisees, they were, they were adding, you know, to the Ten Commandments. They came up with 613, and uh, the Sanhedrin were literally killing people that opposed them. You don't believe that? Jesus spent three years around Galilee arguing with the Pharisees. Twice they tried to save his life. He goes down to Jerusalem, contradicts the Sanhedrin, and in seven days, he's dead. So these are the shepherds that have gone rogue, okay? These are the shepherds that are harassing the people, and uh, of course, then the Sadducees, they just want to team up with Rome and, and uh, forget everything the text says. Anyway, so this is why we have this text that says, O you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Yeah, you're not going to do it? I'll take care of it. I'll send you a shepherd who will shepherd my people. It's Jesus, because you have dropped the ball. Now, if this shepherd comes lowly and humble through, who's it announced to first? It's announced to shepherds first. We'll get to that Friday, but that makes no sense, generally speaking. Anyway, so that's why he says, you aren't doing it. I'll send you somebody who will. In this culture... A shepherd is usually the youngest, a little kid, because it's not rocket science to, to be a shepherd. You know, you just like, you know, look after the sheep. Don't lose them. Don't let the wool, here's a rod, here's a staff, you know, 
go protect them and lead them, you know, where the good water is, good grass, move them around. And, and so it's not rocket science, but it's a job that shows the character of the shepherd. If you're lazy, it shows up in the sheep. Well, you didn't bring them to the good pasture. Why are they sick? You, well, that's not, that's not the stream you should go to. Well, you know, how come you got half of them? So the character of the shepherd always shows up in the quality of the lives of the sheep, right? And so, again, David, he's youngest. He's out there doing his thing with the sheep. Um, Whatever his age, he is protecting them um, probably just day and night living outside. So David knows how to sling a stone. He knows how to make a fire. Uh, He knows how to um, do all these things. And um, All right, so go to verse 6. So we, we get to Bethlehem and verse 6. Now this is going to challenge, maybe you have a mental movie. You've seen too many movies about the, the nativity. So this challenges some of the, the stuff we, we shove into the text. And, and sometimes that's good because we, we want to understand it, but we, at least we have to know what, what's fake and what's real. While they were there, verse 6, the time came for her to give birth. Well, while they were there could be a long time. She's not necessarily nine months when, they're, when they arrive. She could be six months, and they'd spend months there. I don't know. It just while she was there, like eventually it, be, it came time, okay? Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Here we're going to hit pause and geek out and dig down into some words because it helps us understand what's going on and what's not going on. But my first observation is that Mary wrapped him. That speaks of a lonely birth because normally the mother who just delivered the baby, she's in no condition to take on the responsibility of wrapping and cleaning up. So it's a, you have helpers, midwives, somebody, but she's alone, right? Joseph is like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I'm just so she, she has to wrap him up, and that's okay. But anyway, um, and then it says firstborn. Now, in Scripture, there's, there's two ways firstborn is used. If firstborn can mean first, and then there's second, and then there's third, or like in Colossians, the firstborn of, of Jesus, it's his preeminence, his superiority, okay? And that here is the primary meaning. It's not like, oh, he was first, and then there are a bunch of brothers. That's the, the main point is he is superior. He is preeminent. And also, yeah, there were others, but that, that's really the, the drive here is that it's more about the superiority of his birth, less about his other brothers and sisters that were coming up. So we have a contrast between the the ultra commonness of the birth and the incredible greatness of who is being born. And then the text said it was wrapped in swaddling cloths. I had to look that up because still, I'm like, swaddling cloths? We don't use that. You know, go to Target. Do you have any swaddling cloths? Uh, No, we don't. Anyway, um, so I found out that it just meant to wrap an infant in strips of cloth. They would wrap them up. They would take, uh, literally their limbs would be bound and, and, and my, my background as a culture t- book said, when, when an infant was bound in swaddling cloths, they looked like a mummy. Like, okay, but partly to keep them warm and partly to keep their limbs from being all sideways and, and, and twisted because you know, they don't have nice cribs and everything and all the safety features. So they would just, they would just bound them up, and the kids just get like that. But he's warm and he's safe. The limbs are going to be straight. Anyway, that's what's going on with that. Um, the other question that we have that we're not going to get into, but if you haven't heard this, it can kind of be confusing, but the question is, when was Jesus born? 
I'm not talking the date on the calendar, I'm talking the year. And you might be thinking, well, B.C. stands for before Christ, and A.D. stands for after his death, which it doesn't. It's Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. But anyway, well, it got to be zero. No, he's born in 4 or 5 B.C. because he's born during the reign of Herod, and Herod dies in 4 B.C. There, if you want a fun little oops thing, there's this guy who did our calendar, and he, miss, he misparked the, the Jesus, and everything's off by four years, and we're still stuck with it. Seriously, it's a funny thing. You can find it on Wikipedia. but Not, not now, but I'm just saying later. Okay, so um, that's what's going on, but the word in a manger, we're going to dig into that here, okay? So here is a simple sketch of the average first century Palestinian home, and you would have a family room where you do everything. You, you eat, you sleep, you cook. You know, maybe you have a little partition, but basically it's just a large room. It's elevated. You go downstairs to a lower area. The, your door to outside is here, and this is where animals are, and there's no wall here, okay? That's just, that's just a, um, a drop-off of about two feet. So you're on this, like this, on the stage. Like, this is the platform. This is where we live, and there's, there's no steps down to the animals, just a sharp drop, and the animals will be down there. Now, think about that. If the animals are down there, you know, and they're standing up, their head is going to be at the level of this level, so you would put food on the upper level right there where the manger is, and then the animals would stand there, and their neck would reach right in and get it. This manger, it's... Um, I'll get to that later, but that's that's basically how it is now some homes if you're a little bit wealthier You would have a guest room you have a whole nother room for other people Now this is the guest room that was not available when Joseph and Mary go in because everyone else is there for the census They show up uh, that no families they know have this room available the only thing that was available was this animal room and a manger okay, so that's what's going on there. The inn is not an inn. This is just a simple sketch of maybe how some houses look. They did use the roof for various purposes, drying things out. And so um, at night, the animals would go in. They'd stay in that lower area. So the warmth of the animals is your warmth. And the smell of the animals is your smell. It's just the way it was, okay? And so here is, again, this is a good, good cutout. You have the, the stairs I'm talking about. You have the upper layer where people lived, and you have the lower layer where animals spent the night, and this is a manger. It's a stone cutout thing that they would put feed in. It's not hygienic. It's not warm. There's no infrared lights. There's no pulse oximeters. It's just... It's just you know, that's that's what it is, okay? And so often we picture this kind of thing, right? And I'm like, where did they get the two-by-fours? You know, no, they, they don't have that. This this is a manger. So I'm, I'm inviting you to reprogram your mental image of the manger. And so it's more of a stone deal like this than it would be like that. But, okay, it's it's okay to understand that. You don't have to go home and throw your stuff out. It's, it's, not, it's not that bad. I'm just saying we just want to be understanding Scripture historically accurate, okay? So they don't really use wood to build. And so when Joseph is a carpenter, he is working with stones. You saw those houses. They're, they're, there's no studs. The, the only wood in there would be the door and the beams across of which they put the uh, hay and stuff for the roof, okay? The rest is just stone. So Joseph and Jesus, if he's a carpenter, you know, he, he's not, you know, or, you know, hammers. He's, he's working with stones, and, and he probably has pretty pretty good size hands and forearms. He's probably a strong guy. Anyway, just saying. Um, okay, so anyway, this is, this is how we picture, picture all that. It's, it's, it's not a stall 
it's not a barn. It's just that room in the, in the house, okay? So we get to these verses here. I'm just going to uh, contrast some, some passages. The English ESV says, you know, um, laid him in a manger. There's no room for the inn. New American says manger inn. NIV says uh, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available. See, okay, they're, they're digging in and going, okay, this is not a stable. It's not a barn. It's certainly not a motel. It's the guest room, okay? And here the International Standard Version um, accurately translates both of them. She gave birth to the first child, wrapped him in strips of cloth, laid him in a feeding trough because there was no place for them in the guest quarters. That's exactly what's going on. There's no room in the, the guest bedroom, so put him in the feeding trough, okay? So just helping you out with that, that's what's going on here. Um, so no room, um, Passover, anyway, uh, there, there's a bunch of other. Th there's another Greek word for in, um, and when Passover, I'll just skip over that, but there's another word that Luke could have chosen for a, a, a room that you rent, and that's not here, but it is elsewhere. That's all I'm saying. Okay, moving on. So if you want to know what it looks like where Jesus was born, this is the church of the nativity. I was there in 2000. I took this picture, and, uh, and this is funny. This is back when I was using film, and one other guy on the trip had a digital camera. I'm like, what? What? Anyway, I still have film, and so I take all my film into Sam's to get it developed, Every single picture had a strip of bad colors across the top of it. Every single picture. And I'm like, great. That's just, but then like 15 years later, now I'm into digital photography. I finally got software and I was able to painstakingly go and take them all out. Anyway, this is the Church of Nativity um, where Jesus probably was born. And inside of this, you have this grotto. And that is allegedly where Jesus was born. But, you know, when you go to Israel, you start to learn that everything's not really real the way you think about it. They move sites because it's close to the road so they can make money. And, and anyway, I was super disappointed about that. Anyway, um, but still, he was really born in a feeding trough. I mean, um, and they stayed in the guest quarters. All right. So we have to back up and go, well, what, what do the movies say? And how do I picture this? You know, it's not necessarily in a cave. That came up a couple hundred years afterwards. It's not raining. There's no angry innkeeper, and there's no social shame. Oh, you're pregnant. Get out of town. I mean, sometimes we have these things. We kind of exaggerate them. Um, so as long as we, we understand the text, we keep with that. It's great to wonder about those things, and I probably own all those movies about the nativity that have different things, and it's good to entertain it and uh, check it with Scripture. Anyway, back to obscurity, poverty, and rejection. Jesus is born in an obscure town uh, among obscure parents, obscure people. And even his mission is obscure to most people, even his family. Remember, his family thinks he's crazy. Remember that if you're with us with the Gospel of Mark, I had this big complex wheel up there with all these different responses to Jesus, you know, and everyone's, everyone's thinking uh, this, even the crowds turn on him. The only people in the Gospel of Mark to figure it out were the people that shouldn't figure it out. The Syrophoenician woman from Baal worshiping territory. You got the bleeding woman who just get her out of here. She figures it out. And then you have, you have that member of the Sanhedrin who is out uh, giving, you know, assassination lists to people to kill. He's like, he's looking for the kingdom. He probably wasn't doing that, but the Sanhedrin was. So a member of the Sanhedrin, the last place you would look for any spiritual sensitivity, he's looking 
for the kingdom of God. And then you have the Roman centurion, the very last part of the book, Gospel of Mark. The Roman centurion says, surely this is the son of God. <laughs> Just wow. Anyway, so it, it, Jesus comes through obscurity. Even his m- message and his, his mission is obscure to most people. And it's one of poverty. Uh, maybe his dad owns some land up in Bethlehem, but, but still, they're, they're, they're not wealthy. You're, you're, you're needing to stay with the animals. You got no money to, um, to make better arrangements. And so I'm reminded of, of this passage. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So... He, you know, poverty and riches are relative, right? I, I told you, I think I told you this story about a year and a half ago. And if I can't remember it, you can't remember it, so I'll tell it again. I was in the Black Hills working with Lonnie, and we did this VBS thing, and we went around with a van and picked up all these kids that take them to VBS, and there's this one little shack of a hut with blue tarps over it, just a mess. I mean, like, people live here? We pulled up the van, and out came this little kid, and his name, I'll never forget his name, was Trigvi. I've never heard that. And I actually Facebook it, but I couldn't find him. I, there's too many. There's actually people called Trigvi. But his mom, here's the point. His mom would come out and hug him and love him and say, Trigvi, I love you so much. Have a great time at VBS. And that kid just exuded warmth and solidness. And I'm like, wow, there's a lesson. I've never forgotten that. You can know all the gizmos and all the riches and wealth, and you can be poor. So anyway, that was, that was just one of those, those things burned in my, in my little brain in college. Um, one of the few things that stick. Anyway, um, so, so uh, he became poor. Uh, why the feeding trough? Why the poverty? Why the obscurity? Why all this? Because the place of his birth is tied to the purpose of his death. The place of his birth is tied to the purpose of his death. He's born in a manger. He's born in a shepherding sacrificial context, and that is exactly where he's headed, all right? He was born for all, all that would believe him. The Roman soldier can have faith. He's in, the Syrophoenician woman, all these people on the fringes of society that don't get it, and the disciples didn't get it. Faith, that's it. Wow, believe in Jesus. Anybody can do that, and he's rejected because the religious professionals, they had a much longer list of what's required to walk with God, to be known by God. A very, very long list. And frankly, they would say, you, you, you probably can never get there. But here's our list. And they're oppressed and they're harassed by these people. And Jesus came and he said, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. And he actually called the religious leaders of his day, quote, you are twice as much sons of hell. I'm like, does that fit your image of Jesus? I'm like, okay then. So he's, he's, he's giving it back now and then, appropriately. That was appropriate. Anyway, and then he's rejected. So here's a passage in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces as he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So again, he was rejected by the religious leaders. The door is wide open for those that are outsiders become insiders, insiders become outsiders. And so why the feeding trough? Because 
the place of his birth is tied to the purpose of his death, and why the humble arrival, the lowly arrival for the king of kings, because the manner of his arrival is tied to his mission to reach all people, the outcast and the forgotten. And it's a, it's this, this is what Christmas is about, right? It's hard to remember, and, and again, I'm just going to circle around. Stress just skyrockets at Christmas. Our family's not immune from it. We're working through issues with Christmas expectations and, and this and that and all these relationships. And so I know you are too, but just please come back to the simple message of Jesus. He's reaching out to the lowly, the oppressed, the forgotten, the hurting, those that, that society has just thrown away. And he says, you are loved. I am the son of God. You just have to believe that, and you can be an insider. Isn't that amazing? That, that is what Christmas is about. And so my prayer is myself and you, you, we can be agents of that restoration, hope, and redemption with our relationships this Christmas, right? And so um, just a little, little Christmas commercial there. But this is, this is what I'm trying to say. Because Jesus came through the least of these, for the least of these, which is us, our response to his love should include, or at least be open to, obscurity, rejection, and poverty. I mean, we're, we're not going to chase those down, things down on purpose, but really, this is, where, this is where we're trying to go. So here are the key questions. I'm going to wrap up here. We'll pray. We'll have a couple minutes of meditation. We always, we always end our service with a little bit of time to think, because there's not a lot of time in our culture to think, right? And so... Um, if love motivated Jesus to come in poverty, obscurity, and rejection, why are we so determined to gain wealth, fame, and acceptance? That is a penetrating question. What really pushes you over the edge? What causes you grief and, and causes your heart to panic related to wealth, fame, and acceptance? You, you don't have enough likes on Facebook? Does that, does that cause you, you, you to have grief and stress? It's a deal, isn't it? It's a weird deal. How is the love of God motivating you? One of our big themes here at this church is, is, is whatever we do should be a response to God's love. He loved us first, so we love him. So, so his goodness, we see his goodness, and we respond to his goodness. And, and how might you be called to respond to his goodness this Christmas season? So that's kind of where we're at. I'll close up in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Joseph and Mary just taking this assignment, running with it, the shame, the difficulty, the social ostracism they encountered, the joy they probably have watching you know, Jesus, the Son of God, learning to skip stones on a pond and, and, and learning how to do stuff. Um, that had to be just so enlightening. Thank you for them. Thank you for your faithfulness. We want to worship you. Thank you for coming for the lowly. Uh, just we confess our pride and arrogance. If we've worked hard and wealthy and successful, we do not deserve you. We don't, we don't have an upper hand. We're, we don't want to be like the Pharisees. May, may our, our brokenness just, just come quickly to our hearts and minds so we cast ourselves at your feet to receive your goodness and celebrate our acceptance by the Father through you, you the Son. And um, we'll, we'll cherish those things this Christmas. Amen. Thank you.